Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Just Tell Me I Can't, Jamie Moyer. Jamie Moyer, major league pitcher and author of Just Tell Me I Can't. Your book is dedicated to Harvey Dorfman. Who is he? Harvey Dorfman, uh, to me, he was an author himself. Um, sports psychologist, if you will. Um, English teacher, father, um, loved baseball. Um, but as a child was uh, born with an asthmatic condition and uh, unfortunately was really had had a lot of trouble participating in athletics in his younger years uh, but like sports uh, somehow you know continued to stay involved in his own way in sports grew up became educated as i said became an english teacher in high school uh, was a girls ba women's basketball coach and somehow got tied in with a guy a gentleman by the name of carl keel and he and harvey wrote this book uh, the mental guide to baseball uh, then took a job with the Oakland A's, uh, Tampa Bay Rays, Miami Marlins, and then at the end of his teaching career, uh, worked for Scott Boris, uh, an agent. And uh, I read his book, uh, really thought I understood that book, and had the great opportunity to spend two and a half days at his home in Prescott, and really got to understand the book, understand Harvey, but most importantly, Harvey was able to get to know me and kind of pick my brain and force me to think a little bit outside of the box that I was normally used to thinking outside of and um, challenged me in many ways in growing and learning and becoming better on the mental side of baseball. And really that's uh, a lot about what, what this, this book is about. It's a tribute to Harvey Dorfman. Unfortunately, he passed away three years ago. Um, but he was a guy who worked with many, many professional Major League Baseball players and was always trying to allow you to understand how you could make yourself better. And not necessarily how to hit the ball further, how to hit more home runs, how to steal bases, how to throw better strikes, um, but how to be a better thinker, how to be a better preparer, um, the more of the cerebral side of the game and to, and to try to understand that. Um, baseball is a very uh, it can be a negative game, a game, and it can be a, a game uh, of failure. And you know, learning how to deal with that failure, uh, learning how maybe not to like it, but to accept it and deal with it and move forward and realizing tomorrow will be another day, there'll be more chances, um, but minim minimizing the mistakes, uh, preparing yourself to the best of your ability, and challenging yourself on an on a daily basis to become better, but also challenging your teammates to become better as well. How would he do that? I mean, we'd have you do mental exercises. Or um, you know, it, I know for myself personally, um, he got to know me by asking me a lot of questions, and 
know, part of I think some of my concerns as a player were, you know, I wasn't having the success that I and the consistency that I would have liked to have had, and a lot of that became, some of it came from my thought process. I'm not sure if I can. I can't. I won't. I should. The negative kind of words, and he got me to understand. Uh, how to change the negative thoughts and the negative verbiage into positives. And all of a sudden, when you start to think that way, you start to speak that way. And when you start to think that way and speak that way, then you start to act that way. And the results in my life, and the results in my baseball career started to change. And I was aware of it because I, he created that awareness with me. And, you know, there's many other things, you know, controlling your breathing, you know, your concentration, your preparation. Now, is it just pregame preparation? Of course it's not. For a starting pitcher, it was preparation on a daily basis. So for me, it became my four days between my starts were my work days. The day that I pitched was my fun day. So, you know, it just got me to look at things a little differently and focus in the right areas, and not live and die with the game of baseball. What point in your career did you discover him? Right around 1991. Um, I was probably, I don't want to say at the bottom, but you know, getting close to the bottom of what I can look back and say my career. And I had read his book. How long have you been in the majors? Oh, wow. Uh, probably just around, just shy, like five days, five, shy of five years of major league service. But really, if you look back at the first five years of my career, you know, very mediocre numbers. Um, and I've never really been a numbers guy. It's all about contribution. But, you know, the, even the contribution was very sporadic, inconsistent, uh, a lot of walks over the course of a season. Uh, a lot of hits given up, um, and with my style of pitching, you know, I'll take the, a lot of hits giving up. But I had then I have to learn how to minimize the walks, force guys to put the ball in play, rely on my defense, and those are things again, you know, that Harvey taught me to to understand and try to value and learn. Um, but upon reading, like I said, reading the book, spending time with Harvey. Um, really allowed me to kind of take a step back, reevaluate who I was, where I was going, what I really wanted, and really who am I trying to please here? Am I trying to please the fans? Am I trying to please my general manager? Am I trying to please my manager? Or am I just trying to do what I need to do to be the consistent player, to be the guy that's gonna contribute something each and every day and not really worry about what other people think? And that's really what it started to come down to is don't worry about what other people are thinking or saying. Because if you go out and do your job the right way and you're consistent with it, you will change all of their thoughts and ideas about who you are and what you're doing. Well, was there some point you, you started to notice that these mental exercises, this approach the mental, to the mental game was having an effect? I did. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it was immediate because I'd be lying. but it was, and, and really, I had to work on it for the rest of my career. I had to have that awareness. But as I went home and actually had conversation with my wife and I said, you know, it wasn't that I had a revelation, but it was like, wow, I've learned something here that I really didn't give enough time or credit to, to think that, wow, if I want to make some changes, if I want to get better, it's not always just the physical side, it's the mental side. And 
Now I have to work on it. I have to embrace it and I have to work on it. And I was able to take that and work on small pieces and bits and pieces in my off season and then take it into spring training and work on those things. And again, reevaluate, you know, all right, how am I, what am I doing for my preparation during my, you know, my work days, my four days? And then what am I doing on that fifth day? You know, and, and when I go to the ballpark on that fifth day, you know, I could go through a regimen. You know, I'm going to go in, I'm going to I'm going to get out of my street clothes and put my kind of workout clothes on, if you will. But then I go to the training room. I go through some arm exercises. Then I'll go through and do some water work and do some cardio in the water, do some stretching in the water. Um, then I may go in the weight room and do some easy uh, weight work. And then I may go back, you know, kind of get away from that, go back out in the, in the clubhouse, see if I can find the lineup for the day. Then I'll take the notes that I have and use them and maybe write them out. I'm a visual guy, so I want to see that. So if I write them, I see them. So now I got an idea of my lineup for the day. Who are the extra guys? Now I'm going to try to track down my catcher. Let's try to go over the lineup. Let's go over the extra guys. What do you think? What are you seeing? Uh, where, you know, where's your experience? And let's try to put this together and try to create some sort of a plan. So now we feel like we're 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 together and we're moving forward. Um, and then uh, then it's back to me is going back to stretch again, stretch my arm again. And I have uh, actually a set of uh, concentration drills that I have that, uh, again, I learned from Harvey and trying to get my focus from here to here. Some questions that I would ask myself. Um, and then put my uniform on, go out to the field. And from then, now all the preparation is over. Now I have to just rely on my ability and the faith that I have. And I've done everything I need to do for this particular day. When you were getting ready <clears throat> in the couple hours before, did other teammates talk to you, or did you need? Uh, it was interesting. Stuff? In early in my day, that was that was could be part of the regiment, but you know when I was doing my focusing drills and things like that, I actually usually deleted myself from the situation and would go back in a storage closet or somewhere where nobody would be, where I would be in their way or they would be in my way, and I was able to again create my own space and now just do my work. And, and that was all my concentration and focusing drills. Was you, did you have the same routine on your off days, like the first day after you pitched you did this and second day you did that? Pretty much, you did that. pretty much as far as the workouts, yes, yeah. I mean, uh, as, you know, as I got a little bit older, they changed a little bit. I started to work a little smarter. My body wasn't recovering as, as quickly. So, you know, to me, it's all right, you gotta, again, you have to have an awareness and you have to listen to your body and listen to what it's telling you, and that's exactly what we, what I learned to do was maybe back off a little bit or uh, lighten the workload on that that day and, and move that workload to another day. How does your arm feel after you've started a game, pitched 80, 90, 100 pitches? Um, you know, early in the year, it, it may be a little fatigued. Uh, you may feel a little stress in your arm, but as you get yourself in really good shape, and for me it was usually midway to the end of April where I felt like I was really in, you know, arm, my arm was in really good shape. Um, beyond that, um, you know, when, when you don't have any aches and pains, you know, and, and you're not necked up, uh, it really, it doesn't feel too bad. Um, did you have to, know, so ice, did ice? I used a lot of ice. After the game? I was a big believer with ice. Uh, 20 minutes, elbow, shoulder. Um, and, you know, the big, you know, for me, the next, the next day was a big cardio day big cardio day, trying to get rid of stiffness. And how do you get rid of stiffness? You get this guy ticking your heart, you get that coagulated blood, you know, from where you were icing. 
um, and that toxic, all the toxins that you have in your body, try to get those moving with the good blood that your heart's beating, and that's how you get rid of stiffness. So I, I t would tend to, to run a long distance when I was younger. As I got older, the running outside dissipated, and I ran in water to keep some of the, the stress off my hips and my back. How much different is it if you start every fourth day versus every fifth day, or if there's a rain out and you do uh, a you know, day? There's, you know, there, there can be a difference. So it's, it's, I think it's nice. I mean, it, it's nice to know if there's going to, you know, obviously if weather affects it, there's really nothing you can do. But if you're going to go on a short day's rest, you may not want to have as much workload um, on one of your days. You may need to back off a little bit, especially um, if that's going to be something quite common that's going to happen um, you know, for a couple turns in the rotation, but in today's game, you don't see too many four-man rotations until you get to the playoffs, and there's usually enough rest time in between there. Um, you know, if it's a sixth day or a seventh day, you know, now you may have to, you know, the thing that you may have to worry about is finding something to take a little bit of the edge off because you may be feeling a little too strong. But I, I really will, would say that your body gets acclimated to what you're doing even to the extent that you know, after playing for a number of years, your body gets acclimated to the, the bell goes off at spring training. You know, you get through the winter and you get through your workouts, and all of a sudden, you might be getting a little stale, and you're going, "Oh yeah, let me check the oh." In three days, I'm going to spring training, so my body's telling me, "Hey, we need to make a change here." We're getting back to the mental game briefly. Are there players who you would see on your team who just? went at it wrong or like thought too much or, or yeah and we would call much? that paralysis by analysis um, and, and yeah I think you know especially in today's game there's so much information that's out there whether you it's whether it's computer generated uh, whether it's media generated with articles um, you know again I think for me what what I what worked for me was trying to learn what was just enough and try to find out what was too much and try to find out what was not enough. And just try to find that happy medium and stay within those parameters. And for me, in a lot of cases, it was keeping scouting, my own scouting reports um, on hitters and my own opinions and, and through my own experience. Keeping copies of pitching charts that were kept for the pitches, you know, the counting of the pitches that we threw, the pitches that I actually threw, how I got people out, what they got hits on, that kind of stuff. So keeping kind of a, a running count and total of, not necessarily what happened, but how it happened. Um, taking notes off of that or making notes on the pitching charts. Then on occasion, I would read the advanced scouting reports that would come in from a scout who had maybe scouted the club that we're playing uh, for a week or 10 days before we, we are actually currently playing them to kind of see, all right, who's hot, who's not, who's swinging the bat well, who's aggressive, who's not, who might be hurt, who may be just coming off the DL, you know, guys that will bunt, guys that will steal, what are the counts they're going to do this in, you know, just to get some little tidbits of things and I'd try to make notation of all that just so I felt like when I was on the mound, I was, again, prepared the best I could be prepared. When you're pitching, are, are you aware of balls and strikes, number of outs, what the score is? You'd like hope that? to be. I, you would, I mean, it's, you know, there are times I've walked off the mound thinking it was three outs and it's only two. Um, and you can attribute that and people can say, well, you know, he's really not into the game. Or you could say, wow, this guy's really into the game. He has no idea what's going on. So, I mean, you can, you can make that work any way you want to make that work. Uh, but 
Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you pitch to the count, you pitch to the situation, you pitch to a certain part of the batting order, you pitch to how you're feeling. You may even, at times, pitch a little bit towards how the game is being umpired. You know, you may sense something with an umpire and you may say, well, all right, he's giving me the pitch away or slight, just slightly off the plate. And then you move it a little further away and he calls that a strike. And you go, hmm, well, maybe that's not a strike, but let me move it a little further away. Now, if he's going to give me that one, all right, now I'm going to stick that one in my back pocket because when I need to make a pitch, I'm hoping he's going to go out there and, and call that pitch for me. Could you get to know what umpire's strike zones were, or did it change from night to um, night? I mean, sometimes they varied. Now, in, in today's game, again, they're, they're being constantly monitored uh, via cameras from the side and up top, um, and they're being actually graded and scored. And when they have a score be so, be below a certain level, um, I think if it happens on a, I'm not exactly sure where it is, but I, from what I'm understanding, if it's you know consecutive games, they kind of get reprimanded. And now it's, you know, you got to get back with inside the parameters of where you need to be. So, because I think all players, whether they would admit this or not, if they get consistency from an umpire, if they're consistently good, that's great. If they're consistently bad, that's great too. I know you're bad or you're having a bad day, but you're consistent with it. Whereas if one pitch is a strike and then the next inning it's a ball and then the next inning it's a strike and then the next inning it's a ball and as a pitcher, it drives you crazy. You see what I'm saying? And I'm sure as a hitter, if you take it and it's a strike, you're going, all right, you're going to call that pitch a strike? And he'll go, yeah, I'm going to call that a strike. And then you throw it, you know, and, and – you know, he doesn't swing it and he calls it a, a ball. Now I'm complaining, you know what I mean? Well, wait a minute, you used to call you called that a strike. And then he's going, yeah, but no, that's fine. You know, you cuddled a ball for me. So, I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's a game of cat and mouse. When, when you're pitching, can you kind of see the strike zone? You have, an, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I consciously see it, but I've looked in that direction so many times, I know exactly where it is. Sometimes you wonder though, when you're struggling, if that thing isn't on wheels, you know, you're wondering, hey, take the wheels off of that thing and hold it still. How often does the ball go exactly where you want it? I mean, if the, if you, if the catcher puts his mitt there, how often does the yeah, catcher not have to move Yeah, those are the fun his... days. Those are the fun days when you can locate like that, and especially if it's just on the plate or just below the zone, and you're getting swings and misses, you're getting uh, poor swings where they're out in front, or you're, you're tying them up. And you're making, or, and and everything they're taking, the umpire's calling a strike. You know, that's just one of those days where, you know, from the defensive side of it, you're going, this that's a perfect day. But but on the offensive, if you're on the offensive side of that, you're going, this stinks. Do you have a particular game in mind that was your absolute best game when everything worked wow. right? Wow. There's over 600 of those games. <laughs> Um, I've, I've put it this way, of games out there, over 600 games in, in the major leagues. Um, you know, I can go back to a game, I don't know the exact, I know the team I was facing. Um, it, was, it was interleague play when I was in Seattle uh, against the St. Louis Cardinals. And the only reason I remember it so vividly is that Tino Martinez was on that team as a first baseman. And the next day, I had a really good game, and the next day, 
he came up to me as I was running across off the field from batting practice, and he said, "Hey, Jamie, you pitched a really nice game yesterday." And you know that usually doesn't happen from the opposing you know position players. And he he just kind of stopped me. He said, "You know why?" And I said, "No, I have no idea." Because I wanted to hear what he'd say. I kind of had an idea what he was going to say, but I wasn't exactly sure. And he did kind of catch me off guard. He said, "You know what? Every ball you threw had really good angle to the plate, and it's really hard to decipher whether it was a ball or a strike. And you change speeds very well." So from that short statement right there, I walked maybe. 30 yards from off the field in our dugout into our video room, which was right behind our dugout. And I sat down and I asked our video guy, I said, Carl, could you make me a tape of yesterday's game? Because to me, that's one of those good tapes. That's what you want to reinforce. And you just had somebody who was a very good player and a very good hitter and somebody that I respected greatly. I didn't really know him that well, but respected him greatly from across the field. And I thought, wow, if he's giving me that advice, I should do something with it. So I got a copy of that tape and I literally carried it everywhere with me um, in, my, in, in uh, the locker room, in my locker. Um, and when I struggled for the remainder of my career, I always referred back to that tape. Did you read what sports writers wrote about you? Not on a consistent basis, really not on a consistent basis. You know, there were times where I'd hear things that people would say. But, you know, again, it's good or bad. It's just an opinion. It's just an opinion. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes you can get caught up in your own press clippings. And, um, you know, for a long time in my career, I chose not to read um, about my team. I looked at box scores. I found that I could get information from box scores. Um, or I'd read other articles about other teams, especially teams that we are currently playing or are coming up that we, we might be playing. But I really tried to keep my nose out of things that were going on with our team. Um, I think it can have an effect on you in, in, in a couple of ways. And you know, you know as a teammate what guys are playing well and what guys aren't playing well. You know when a, a guy is struggling and he may be struggling because of his just his own baseball struggles. He may have something going on at home that nobody knows about or that everybody knows about. But maybe the community or the, you know, the media doesn't know about it. And so now all of a sudden they're getting beat up in the newspaper because they're doing so poorly you know, on the field. But nobody seems to know about what may be going on in his personal life. And I find that hard. I, I struggle with that. And not that, you know. Their, our personal lives need to be out in the media. So I just chose to try to be supportive of my teammates and really not get too caught up in publicly and in the media what's going on. When you had uh, finished a game and reporters were all huddled around you firing questions at you, did, did you kind of enjoy that or is it like... You oh, know, I learned to enjoy that. I, I probably didn't enjoy it too much um, early in my career. I felt like it was overwhelming, felt like I was being ganged up on. But I think I learned over the course of my career that, you know, the media can be a great tool. And if used appropriately, it can be a very positive thing for you. Um, and, and it really allows the fan base to get to know who you are. And I, I've always believed that if you can be upfront and honest with the media, as honest as you can be, 
And when they say, well, you know, you had a bad game tonight, you know, you, you, you pitched a decent game, but in the fourth inning, you, you know, you really struggled. You got behind in the count, and you gave up a home run, and then three doubles, and then a single, and then a triple. You know, I can honestly say, you know what? I stunk tonight. I really stunk tonight. And that's on me. I threw the baseball. I will take that responsibility. And, you know, it would bother me, but it's my responsibility. And, be, and being a pitcher, to me, that's the responsibility that you need to take. But if I wear that or own that, I think I'm going to gain a lot more respect out of you, the media person. Just like on the night where they say, wow, you just had a, you know, you just threw an eight-inning shutout, you know, great game, and you did this and you did that. You're going to take that same responsibility. So I think you learn to take the good with the bad, but when the good is good, you let it be good. And when the bad is bad, I learned that if I can take something, turn something bad in today's game to a positive, all of a sudden that bad day isn't as bad because I've learned something from it and I'm going to become better from it or I'm going to minimize that mistake. Well, how, how would you do that? I mean, you, you gave up, is it 522 home runs? Oh, at least. Most, I, most I, I, I lead Major League Baseball in home runs. So when you would throw that three-run home run, how do you then for the next pitch just block it out? Well, I learned, you know, again, that, that's part of, you know, the Harvey thing, you know, blocking things out and, and focusing on the task at hand. First of all, I felt like I'd be, I could be really honest with myself. Did I make a good pitch or did I not make a good pitch? Um, did I pitch it? Was I pattern pitching? Did I go, you know, three hitters in a row, fastball away, fastball in, change up away? Well, hitters are going to start picking up on that. All right, fastball in, fastball away, or fastball away, fastball in, change up away. You know, they're going to pick up on that thing. Or breaking ball, breaking ball, fastball. You know, breaking ball, breaking ball, fastball. Breaking ball, breaking ball, fastball. You know, they're, they're smart. They're, I mean, this is what we do for a living. So you know, that's why they're good hitters. That's why the average hitter becomes a great hitter because he can pick up on things like that. So knowing that, understanding that, so I have to be able to, you know, internalize myself. All right, was that a good pitch or was it a bad pitch? Am I creating a pattern? All right, is it something I need to do it, that I need to be more aware of it or do I need to talk to my catcher? And we both need to be more aware of it. You know, am I ahead in the count? Am I behind in the count? You know, that, that, again, if you're 2-0, and oh, you got to come to the plate. If you're 0-2, you don't have to throw as many strikes. Is a lot of that kind of guesswork, like trying to guess what the batter it's is where the mental part of the game comes in. You tell something in the book about how you would signal to the catcher with your teeth mm, whether you wanted change where location. you wanted to. I can use change location with my teeth, and I could do it real late in the count. Um, you know, he could say, uh, he could call for a, uh, a fastball away. So say I'm the catcher, and I give you a fastball away, okay? And he sets up away, and I could literally start my windup, and I could get to, I could just do that, and he would move in. What uh, were there catchers who you particularly clicked with, and others who you? Uh, uh, I'd probably odds? say my most favorite catcher that I caught that caught me in the course of my career would have been Dan Wilson. He probably caught me for about eight years, seven, eight years when I was in Seattle with the Seattle Mariners. Um, he just, we just had an unbelievable, uncanny relationship on and off the field. Just a really good guy, a really solid person, a great father, um, just a very good person and really cared about how you did as a pitcher. 
but how we did as a team. Uh, Carlos Ruiz, teammate here in Philadelphia, um, a converted second baseman to catcher, worked very diligently, worked very hard to become the catcher he's become. Um, was really impressed by how, how quickly he was able to do that. Even with a little bit, of, when he first came to the big leagues, a little bit of a, uh, I would say a little bit of a language barrier, uh, but really not afraid to ask questions and most definitely not afraid to work. This guy was very dedicated to, to becoming the best he could be. Uh, another guy was Jim Sundberg. I caught him at the tail end of his career and I was a very green, young, big league guy at the time. Um, I just, we kind of crossed paths at the right time in my career, but unfortunately I only pitched a little bit to him, but had the good fortune of being around him. Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of catchers in 20 some years catch me. Uh, Tom Lampkin, who are people going to say, who's he? Did he? I'd never even heard of that guy. Uh, he, he caught for me a little bit in, um, in Seattle, who was our backup catcher. Uh, he taught me a, 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 such a simple set of signs, and they're all touches uh, that I used from that point on with guys, uh, with you know, runners in, or at second base. Um, it just kind of sped my game up. But I mean, little things like that that, that have helped me throughout my career, and, and, and I'll be thankful to, to those people. But really, I'm thankful to all the, the guys that I've ever played with. You know, I think we have, a, uh, as a group, we have a special bond. Um, you know, because we are, we do do something that's unique, and there aren't many of us. Uh, when you think about the history of the game, there aren't many of us, um, and it's just a different life than you know. The, I don't, don't say the normal life, but you know, people that have the nine-to-five job. You know, it's just it's just a, an entirely different way to make a living, but a, a fun way. But one more thing about the catchers when when during a game when a catcher comes out and you talk at the mound, what do you talk about? There's a lot of things you can talk about. You can talk about the hitters. You can talk about um, you know you may be tipping pitches. You may be talking about um, uh, like I said tipping pitches, um, changing signs, um, holding runners on base better. You know, giving a guy a, a couple of looks, especially at second base, so they don't steal third, or to give the catcher a chance to throw somebody out at third base. Um, you may be talking about the, the current scenario. All right, we got a man on, we got a man on second. We've got two outs, and I know the guy coming to the plate. You don't have really good numbers against. Well, let's be careful early in the count here. If we get behind him, let's kind of let's not intentionally walk him, but let's walk him because the next guy coming up, you have really good numbers against. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. All right, good. All right, so you go ball one, ball two, and then you go, okay, now I'm going to miss ball three, ball four. He's on first base. Now you're going, all right, this guy I know I can get out. You know, again, that's the mental part of it. You come up and go, eh, I'm not sure about this guy. Well, you're not even giving yourself a chance because you're telling yourself you're not sure. You know, how many times, and I've heard this a lot with, I'm kind of getting off track here, but a catcher will call a pitch and say it's a curveball, and you're standing on the mound going, mm. you know, and you may not be showing it, but inside you're, the reactions, oh, I don't know if I can, oh, all right, I guess I'll throw it. All right, I hope I don't hang it. And then you, and boom, and you know, you usually react to your last thought, I hope I don't hang it. Instead of saying, okay, you know, I'm going to throw this pitch, I'm going to throw a good curveball. So, you know, again, uh, that's part of the mental side of the game. And it's something, you know, you, 
You don't hear many people talk about that publicly. You may hear it talked about in the bullpen, uh, in the dugout, but you don't hear a lot of guys talk about that you know, in, in, in the public. Well, you say in the book when you were with the Orioles, you used to sit around with their other pitchers Mike and Mussina, talk about pitching. Yeah, yeah Todd, Todd Froworth, yeah, Jim Poole. Was that unusual, or do pitchers um, sit around and talk about pitching? I, I, I would say it's many years ago, it wasn't. When I first broke in, it wasn't very, it was very common, put it that way. Uh, I think it's becoming a little less common. I think sometimes people are afraid or they're intimidated. And I don't know why. I really don't know why. Um, and, uh, to a certain extent, I think it's because they don't feel comfortable talking about it. They don't feel like they have knowledge. And, and that's a shame because right or wrong, I think all this is, it's an opinion. I don't think there's an exact, there's not an exact science on how to pitch or hit or field or win or lose or run a team, right? There's, I have not ever seen a book in a bookstore about anything about any of those things I just mentioned. So it, it becomes an opinion. And all of a sudden when you start to do things and, you, and it's working for you, all of a sudden that's the right way. Right? That's, that's kind of how we go through life. Speaking of book, well, you're here for a book that, that you've written. Yes. And um, it, it's called uh, Just Tell Me I Can't. Yes. And it's written with Larry Platt. And yes. Unlike most books like this, this is written in the third person. Yes. It's, Jamie yes. Moyer did this or right. said that. Right. Why did you do that that way? Well, I did it because I didn't want this to be a, a book, an I, me book, and a book about me. Um, with me talking and saying, well, this is what I did and this is how I did it and I'm a great player and this and that. You know, I was the player I was because of the people around me. Okay, I had to have some talent to get here, but the people around me made me who I was. Uh, but they also made me accountable. But the reason for this book is to take a lot of experience that I've had in the course of my life, in the course of my career, and the, teaching, the teachings that Harvey Dorfman gave me and kind of make this a book in tribute to Harvey, but to share with whoever wants to pick up this book, not just the baseball fan, but to whoever wants to pick up this book and say, you know what, there's some life lessons in this book. And I think there's a lot of analogies that I've learned in my baseball career that, that took place in baseball, but have you know, come across the line into my daily life. And that's what I'm trying to share. And to, or to say when somebody said, and I've heard this a lot in my life, you're too small, you don't throw hard enough, you're too slow, your curveball's too loopy. And hence the title of the book, Just Tell Me I Can't. Because I learned, I've heard it enough in my life um, from Little League through college, even after I signed a professional contract, I was told things that I couldn't do. And in 1991, I was told to retire and start coaching. So, you know, and I played 20 more years. So, and then some, some of it's because I wanted to and believed that I could play. But I was told so many times in my younger years, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And I learned as I got a little bit older that that was kind of like fuel for me. It was like gasoline being poured on a fire. When that gasoline got poured on the fire, that fire in my belly got a little bit bigger. And it wasn't that I was angry towards the people that were saying that, because it was their opinion. And I realized it's only an opinion. But what it did, it kind of fueled the fire to say, you know what? I'm going to prove it to myself first and foremost, because that's who it really matters. 
but I am going to show people that if I, if given an opportunity and you have a dream and you have passion, you can attain whatever you want to attain. But in a, in a baseball world where people expect the, the, the 93, 94 mile an hour fastball, your fastball was pretty slow well by below comparison. That. Well below that for my whole career. I was probably, you know, I topped out at 84 miles an hour. Um, and, you know, by the end of my career, after my Tommy John surgery, I probably was 79, 80, 81. Um, you know, to me, I was a finesse pitcher. I relied on locating my fastball, throwing a, a change up, a cut, having a cut fastball. Um, some of these things I learned a little, more, little bit more towards the end of my career. But again, I was you know, continually told, you can't, you can't, you can't. And you know, my response is, give me an opportunity. Give me a chance. Let me prepare, but give me a task, or let me create the task, and I will do it. But it takes, a, and I also realize it takes a team. So if I'm a pitcher, and I do my job, and my infield does their job, and my outfield does their job, and my catcher does their job, and our coaching staff does their job, and we all do it well, and we do it consistently, we have a good chance of winning. Because we all believe in each other, and we all trust each other. And we all work with and for each other. How old were you when you or people around you noticed that you were a pretty good ball player? That I was a, a what ball player? Pretty good ball player. Well, I mean, I was pretty good as a kid. Uh, but I was just small. I was one of the smaller guys. I mean, in high school, my junior year, I threw three no-hitters in a row. I would think most people would say, that's pretty good. But I didn't throw 90 miles an hour. You know, I had a curveball, which a lot of kids didn't have. Um, in high school, I threw five no-hitters. Were you better than all the other players around you in high school? Mm, I would say I was probably a little bit better, yes. Um, but my part of my issue in high school was I wasn't much of a student. And I can say that now. I'm, you know, and then I would have never admitted to that. But you know, I've got my college degree. You know, I played 20 some years in Major League Baseball, and I also have my college degree, and I'm proud of both. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a father that can say, you know what, I, I believe in education, and I, and we push that with our own children at home. But for me not to have my education and then me to push my kids to get an education wouldn't really make sense. Did so, you get your degree before you started your baseball career? No, I uh, actually went out of high school, went to St. Joseph's University. After my junior year, I signed with the Chicago Cubs in the sixth round of the June draft. I was out of school six years before I decided, decided to go back. So I'm I graduated in 81, uh, 1981. I got my college degree in 1996. So it took me 15 years, but I was also playing uh, professional baseball as well. What's your degree in? General studies. Um, I, always, I always tell people I, I don't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I still don't feel like I'm a grown-up yet. So, I mean, I played a kid's game for 42 years. I'm 50 years old. Uh, it's the first year I haven't played baseball in 42 years. And uh, I'm just enjoying myself at home. I'm going to start a, uh, a pitching academy called Moyer Pitching Academy. Um, we have eight children, um, one in professional baseball, two in college, one in high school, and four in elementary school. Um, I have an organic garden that I'm proud of and some fruit trees and uh, I love being home. So, and you know what, if something comes along in the professional game, who knows where that may eventually take me as well. One of your kids is in professional baseball where? With the Dodgers. Yeah, he signed this year. Um, he was drafted late in the draft. Uh, he played for the uh, Ogden, in, in, in Ogden, Utah, the Ogden Raptors.
Now, when you were a kid in, in high school, you were probably better than the kids around you. And, and college, was it like that in college? Yeah, I had, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I was the star. We had some very talented players at St. Joe, but I was very successful. How did it compare when you got to the minor leagues? And at some point did you realize, oh, um, I'm surrounded by people who are as good as well, I am? Well, I, I realized when I got to the minor leagues that, um, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of good players and, and you know, players. I, I had never really been around Latin players who are very talented players. Um, you know, and then as I started to go a little bit further higher in baseball, I was around some Asian players who I never had a chance to play with Asian players. Um, again, very talented players. So all of a sudden, you know, the dynamics change a little bit as, as you play the game. But, um, you know, I was a little skeptical and a little unsure when I signed a contract with the Cubs and went to this little mini spring training that we had in, in Mesa, Arizona. And I was going to be with kids that j just recently signed from all over the country and all over the world. And I'm thinking, how am I going to fit in? Where am I going to fit in? I'm not good enough. I'm, 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 I'm this kid from southeastern Pennsylvania, and these kids are from Florida and Texas and California, and they're bigger and stronger and faster. And you know what? Some of them were, and some of them had far more talent. But I had to learn to utilize the talents that I had. I couldn't be them and they couldn't be me. So it's learning what you have and take those skill sets and try to fine tune those. And then, like I said, in, in the 1991 kind of part of my life was learning that the mental side became a very important factor in who I was. When you were in uh, the minor leagues, when did you get the word that you were being called up? What was that like? That was pretty exciting for me. That was in 1986. I was probably my second full year in the minor leagues. I was in Des Moines, Iowa, and we were in Omaha leaving, and we were finishing a road trip, and we were going to take a bus back to Des Moines. And that's where our home base was, Des Moines, Iowa, the Iowa Cubs. And uh, my pitching coach came out to the bus, and he called me off the bus, and he just looked at me. He had this really dry humor. His name was Jim Colborn. He pitched in the big leagues. Actually threw a no-hitter in the big leagues with Milwaukee. And he pulls me off the bus and with kind of the stern look, he looks at me. He goes, do you think you're ready to pitch in the big leagues? Like he was scolding me. And I'm like, um, I don't know. He goes, well, you're going. Like now it's like he was scolding me. And he goes, go talk to Larry, which was our manager um, in the clubhouse. He was trying to have fun with it all, which, you know, he intimidated me even more. So I go in and talk to Larry. Uh, Larry Cox was our manager. I went and talked to him and he said, hey, you're going to get called. You're going up to the big leagues. And it just so happened my roommate, Dave Martinez, got called up as well. So, you know, needless to say, the bus ride back to Des Moines was crazy because I was just, you know, elated. Uh, we got back to Des Moines. We packed his apartment because I was living with him in the apartment. And next morning, not even that same day, because we got home really, really late, uh, got on a plane, flew to Chicago and I made my debut, uh, I want to say two or three days later, um, against the Philadelphia Phillies and pitched against my boyhood idol, Steve Carlton, and won the game. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, a big moment in my life, a big moment in my career, and it was great to be able to share that with my parents. Uh, my college coach came, a buddy of mine from college came, or I mean from high school came, and, you know, it was a dream come true. You know, and that's kind of the, the start of, you know, where my major, in 1986, June of 1986, where my major league career began. Was, was there a, a dramatic difference in talent level from the minors where you were to the majors? Um, 
you know, the, the, the difference to me is consistency, strength, and experience, and confidence. You know, those who are, most who are in the big leagues have confidence. They've had success. They've experienced success. They know how to, not always know how to deal with the success, but they have gotten a really good taste of what success really is. Those in the minor leagues are learning and trying to deal and trying to cope with some of that. Or, you know, they're trying to fill the shoes, these big shoes that they're given to them, maybe really not rightfully so. But somebody says, this kid's got talent. He's going to be the next so-and-so. I'll give an example. When I was here with the Phillies, um, and when I first came over to the Phillies in 06, Cole Hamels, oh, he's the next Steve Carlton. He's, you know, those are big shoes to fill for a 23, 24-year-old kid. And you know what? He might be, but let him create that. You see what I'm saying? You know, but to say, you're going to be Steve Carlton. Now, what if he thinks he is Steve Carlton and can't fill those shoes? That's a lot of talent that goes down the tubes. So it's just, but everybody handles it differently. So, and I think for me as, as an older player realizing that, it's up to me to try to keep that player humble and try to keep him on, on, on task and on the right track. But, you know, at times you have to let some of these guys fall off a little track if, and then be there to let them fall a little bit and then kind of grab them by the arm and bring them back because, you know, I've, I've sensed with guys that, you know, have a lot of success and a lot of success and all of a sudden they struggle and they've, maybe they've never struggled in their career or their life before, all of a sudden they start to struggle and they fall completely to pieces. And you've built this person up to get to a certain point and to let them fall and, and fall completely to pieces, you may not ever get them back. So it's really, it's, 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 a, it's a tough balancing act. Is the team leader still an important job where someone who is a player who I would like to say when, when, when a team has that personality on a team, I think it's a huge role. I think it's a huge responsibility, and I think it's a, a great to see that and to have that kind of person on a club. But I see it less and less because I don't know if those personalities are really out there. And if they are, I think in some cases they don't want to step forward and be that guy with that responsibility. Were you on a team that had a team leader like that? Yes, yes. When I was with Seattle, Jay Buhner was that guy. And I'll never forget it. He was just, he, he knew when to bark. He knew when to laugh. He knew when to screw around. Um, he knew when to pick you up. He knew when to put you in your place. Um, and he was just that, and he, and he knew when to beat himself up. You know, he re really could kind of keep himself in line. But uh, he was, a, and, a, and a, for me, he was a role model. He was a role model, but he was a position player. And usually when you see a lot of team leaders, especially the vocal kind of guy, it's the guy that plays every day. You grew up as a Phillies fan? I did. Wh what was the first team you started following, first year? Oh, wow. Probably that, that I can really remember. I don't know if there was, it was a particular team or if there were any players. It's just watching the Phillies, you know, uh, I'm going to say maybe around the 70s. I was born in 62, so I started playing Little League Baseball at the, at the age of eight. So, you know, our Little League program would come down at the end of our baseball, you know, summer baseball season, and the Little League program would bring the kids down, and we'd sit up in the yellow seats in the vet, and you'd watch the game from way up there. And, you know, but it was a thing, you know, it's kind of cool to come to Veterans Stadium and, and watch the Phillies play, you know, the major league team. But as I got older, uh, my dad coached me from, uh, 
Little League Baseball all the way through American Legion. And as I got older, um, he coached our Connie Mack and American Legion teams, and he would take us to see the Reading Phillies. And I really enjoyed going to see the Reading Phillies because I could relate to that a little bit easier, guys closer to my age. Um, I, was, I was aspiring to be one of those guys, um, but I could literally go down to the bullpen and be just a chain link fence away from a professional baseball player that was throwing a bullpen. And I could, you know, I could hear him breathe. I could watch, I could, I could hear the ball, you know, zip out of his hand. I could hear the smack in the glove. You know, and it just, it puts you in a completely different place. And I didn't have to wait in line at the concession stand for a hot dog and fries. So, but I mean, but you could be really close to the action of the game. And for me, it gave me a totally different perspective of the game of baseball. When you finally made it to the major leagues and you pitched against Steve Carlton, who you said is his boyhood idol, when did you get to talk to him? I actually had the good fortune uh, when I was in college, my college coach knew David Montgomery. And David Montgomery set up uh, a brief meeting with Claude Osteen, who was the pitching coach with the Phillies, and Steve Carlton one day. So we came down to the vet, we met underneath, and I threw a little bit of, uh, I threw a bullpen for Claude Osteen. And Steve Carlton was there and we chatted for a little bit. So that was, that was pretty cool for myself. Great experience. Did you, you cross paths with him later on in the May? Were you ever on the same team? We're never on the same team, no. Well, I, I wanna, uh, if, if the reports were correct that I remember, in 1980 when the Phillies won the World yes. Series, you cut class to yes. go to the parade? Yeah, yeah, I skipped a day in high school um, to go to the parade. Um, which was, you know, a spectacle, obviously, you know, in the city of Philadelphia. Um, was it the 60s was the last time, or the 50s, 60s was the last time the Phillies were in a World Series. They had never won right? before 1980. Right. 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 So, you know, it's the big, you know, the big time, right? And uh, you know, I thought, you know, I'm a senior in high school. I'm pretty cool. I can skip school and came down with a couple buddies and we, you know, we went to the parade. Um, you know, 28 years later, you know, Little did I know I'd be a Philly and be on a world championship winning team and be on the float driving down Broad Street. It was pretty, pretty cool, pretty magical. Yes, observant viewers might notice that you have the World Series yeah, ring on your hand is, there. Uh, this is the ring that uh, we worked ever so hard for. Can you talk about that year? Magical. Magical year for us. A magical year for the Phillies organization. Magical year for the fans. Um, you know, I, I kind of like to go back and start with the 2007 season. You know, we had a pretty nice season uh, as an organization, as a team, and uh, worked very hard to get to the playoffs and ran into a red-hot Colorado Rockies ball club, and they swept us in three games. And I can literally remember sitting in the clubhouse in Colorado. I actually pitched that game three. Uh, we ended up losing that game. I think I came out winning one nothing. We lost two to one or three to two, something like that. But we ended up losing the game, getting beat in the series, and our season was over. I think the expectation on that 2007 team was very high for us as players, or with us as players. We got knocked out in three games like that. Like we didn't even belong on the same field. And in that clubhouse, there were many demoralized players many upset players, many irritated, angry players. And I think 
a lot of that team came back the next year. But when I, we came back to spring training, I noticed a little more urgency with that group of guys. And a little bit of swagger. Not cocky, but a little bit of swagger. But the urgency and you know the workmanlike attitude that was with that group. And you just kind of sensed that, hmm, this is interesting. And I think we really gelled well together in spring training. And that's what a lot of what spring training is about, getting that team to come together. And uh, you know, as we got through spring training, you know, we moved into the season and you know, things started moving in a good direction for us and we had a really nice season. Um, and you know, we ended up winning our division and went down to, you know, towards the, to almost the end of the season, won our division and you know, just kept going from there, you know, win, win, win. And you know, we had some great pitching performances uh, from Cole. Uh, Matt Stairs had a you know, big home run. Um, Shane Victorino, everybody contributed. Um, there in the rain delay, um, Jeff Jenkins came back and hit a double. You know, after an overnight rain delay, I mean, everybody contributed, and that's really what it takes. Brad Lidge had a perfect year as a closer. I mean, it's just a magical, magical season, and you know, to be able to to have that happen in a city where I can more or less say I wasn't born exactly in the city, but outside the city. But you know, to say that the, Phil the Phillies were my home team, um, growing up here, going to college here, and then coming back and playing here is, is pretty magical. Now you did not have a great playoffs that no, year, I didn't. but you, I didn't. you started a World Series game. I did, and that's a, that's a and you were sick a dream. The night before, yeah, was I was sick. I had a uh, a virus that started probably two days before when we were in Tampa, and I couldn't shake it and. Uh, you know, we went out to dinner the, the night before the game, and we obviously we had a bunch of family in and all that. We ate dinner at the saloon and had a great dinner, but I mean, my stomach was just churning and rumbling, and so I excused myself. I went back and ended up I had a you know, bad case of diarrhea, and it just wouldn't seem to go away, and the stomach thing just kept going and going. So I got some uh, Imodium when I went to the ballpark and, you know, tried to, Take care of it that way, and you did know, anyone on the team know you were going through this? Or did our you trainers knew. Oh, they did. Know. Yeah, because they're the ones that gave me the emodium. Um, but other than that, I didn't really want to make a. You know, our, you know, Carlos Ruiz may have known, but I didn't really want to make a scene over it. I, it wasn't anything that I needed. I didn't need an excuse. You know, I waited my whole life to be in this situation. And it was really interesting because when I woke up almost at lunchtime. Sweat. My clothes were soaking wet. The bed. You know, I put a whole bunch of clothes on to try to sweat it out. That was the day of the game. Yeah. And uh, you know, my lovely wife Karen says, "Well, maybe we should call Charlie, and tell him you're sick, and that you can't pitch." And I looked at her and I said, "Are you kidding me? We will not call Charlie and tell him that I can't pitch. I've waited my whole life for this opportunity." So we kind of went back and forth with it a little bit, and then I decided to take a shower, and get redressed and take a nap, and woke up and you know, kind of collected myself, had a peanut butter banana sandwich and a a bowl of uh, chicken noodle soup and went off to the ballpark and you know just tried to get through it and uh, you know while I was pitching I didn't really feel it but between innings uh, it was just was not fun so uh, but yeah it was you know it was one of those days that you know nothing is going to keep me from pitching in this game today how'd you do 
Uh, we ended up winning. I did not get the win, but we ended up winning as a team. And to me, that was the most important thing. Um, you know, this being my first opportunity to pitch in a World Series, I was just tickled to have that, that opportunity. Um, and like I said, we won the game, and that's what's most important. So We only have a couple minutes left, and there's a lot of the story after, uh, for, of your story after mm -hmm. the career. You, you won a game at age 49, yes. the oldest pitcher yes. to ever win. Yes. And what, what happened from the time you left the Phillies to, the, to today? Well, I left the Phillies. In two I, was, minutes. I was actually hurt. <laughs> uh, I had a Tommy John surgery. I rehabbed that. I came back. And again, I was told, you're not going to make it back from that. You know, just tell did me I can't. Did your family tell you to give it up at that point? You know, they supported me. They really did. They actually wanted, they still want me to play. So maybe that's a hint that dad, get out of the house. But um, no, it's just, you know what? They've always supported me and what I want to do. And um, just exciting times for me. And, you know, again, coming back from Tommy John surgery, which, you know, again, I was told I wouldn't be able to pitch from, was part of that challenge, but also for me to, you know, personally to persevere through something like that. But, uh, you know, to get, you know, if I played long enough to get that win, it's not why I was playing. It just so happened that that happened. Um, and, you know, having this great opportunity to write this book in tribute to Harvey Dorfman, uh, to me, really kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say epitomizes my career, but allows me to kind of celebrate and share my career with fans. And I hope people enjoy reading that book and hopefully get something out of it. And hopefully, you know, they can maybe create or understand that maybe there's some challenges or something going on that has gone on in their life or is currently going on in their life and can make that comparison and, and learn more about themselves and kind of free themselves and, and, and chase their dreams. Because I'm a believer that, you know, if there's something out there that you really want, that you want, that you want to attain, all it is is it takes time and effort and, and you have to have some passion. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Jamie Moyer. He's the author of this book, Just Tell Me I Can't. Jamie Moyer, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.